0: I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker, and today I'm talking with director Sylvia Kaminer about her debut feature film, Follow Her, which is part of everyone's favorite genre, whether they admit it or not, the psychosexual thriller. The film stars Danny Barker, who also wrote it, and plays a kind of OnlyFans-type performer and influencer who is hired by a client named Tom Brady, mm-hmm, Tom Brady, to help him finish his screenplay. Played by Luke Cook, he's handsome and charming, but also a total weirdo. I'm recording this in beautiful Provo, Utah, where the film is now playing at the FilmQuest Film Festival, and I just came from the great Austin Film Festival, where Follow Her is simultaneously playing. I first saw it last month at the Heartland International Film Festival, and it sounds like I'm stalking the movie, I'm not, I'm not like a deadhead for follower, it just keeps showing up at all these festivals like I go to because it is getting a lot of great festival attention. Sylvia and I talked about her transition from making docs to features, what's involved in making a psychosexual thriller in 2022 and subverting the genre, and finally, how this very meta film came to be in part because writer-star Danny Barker reached out to someone she heard on a podcast. Wouldn't it be wild if you ended up making a movie with Sylvia because of this podcast? Let's see where this goes as I talk with Sylvia Kaminer, director of Follow Her.
1: Sylvia Kaminer, what a pleasure to talk with you about Follow Her. I got to check out this movie at the Heartland International Film Festival. Loved it super engrossing, a lot of twists on a sort of familiar format. Can you just explain to people what Follow Her is?
2: Sure. And first off, Tim, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I'm a fan, a movie maker, have been for years. Um, so it's it's a thrill. So thank you. <laughs> um, so Follow Her is um, it's an indie film. Um, it is a psychological, we kind of say an erotic psychological thriller. And it's about a, a young woman who kind of finds her herself and like her worth online. She's put a lot of emphasis and that she makes her living by secretly filming wacky jobs she finds online. And she doesn't have the permissions of the people she's she's filming. So it questions a bit about what's going too far for likes and follows. And it gets kind of creepy. She She takes a job with someone who is very alluring kind of tall, dark and handsome Australian man, and maybe follows him into a world where, you know, you would say run. But uh, for this, you know, sometimes we we blur what's safe and not because we become a little bit desperate. So it's you know, it's an erotic thriller about a young woman who goes a bit too far online. And it kind of I also like to say it's almost a cautionary tale about social media and what could even be happening now. You know or like in the foreseeable future you know down in the dark and you know ways maybe you don't want to go
1: yeah there's fascinating stuff about voyeurism because people are watching her as if she had like an only fans account um but then there's other aspects about accountability and anonymity where she's blurring the faces of her clients mm-hmm. but i guess the instigating incident is that she forgets to blur one of their faces and things get bad
2: Right. Yeah. Well, there's a a glitch or something. But yeah, it's a quick. It's a very quick moment. But yeah, yeah. And you learn kind of about this other world, you know, which we won't say too much because it's a bit of a spoiler. But
1: yeah, yeah. So. so you made documentaries before, and you've made documentaries about Tanzania, about travel. I know you love travel, mm-hmm. and about Rick Springfield. <laughs> yes. How did you end up making each of those documentaries?
2: Well, so. I've always loved movies, um, and I always knew I wanted to, to to tell stories, make movies. I started as a stage director, so I was very comfortable working with actors. And then, you know, I was in New York City kind of on the indie film scene, and I was producing a lot of films for a lot of different directors, one being John Gallagher, who I did three films for. He kind of was a mentor. And, you know, I kind of fell into documentaries, I think it was a little bit of an easier way to kind of get a film made. I saw a film called Hoop Dreams, mm-hmm. which kind of, I think that was in the early nineties. And that really made me see the impact of documentaries and how you could cover subjects in a way that you can't in narrative. Well, you can try a narrative, but there's just such power to telling those real stories and i digging, digging into real lives. Um, so I think that really opened me up. It's not the only doc that impacted me, but that was the one that I was like, oh my gosh, Steve James, I think is a director, um, I want to, you know, I could see putting a couple years of my life into, into making a story, a journey like this. And so it all kind of came together. Um, I was introduced to a girl named Kristen Kenny, um, who's planning to go to Africa to Tanzania and her, you know, she was going to go do a travel show, like fish out of water. And she was going to go with her best friend, uh, Benance, uh, who's from Tanzania, little village there. And. They wanted i was already doing uh samantha brown shows i think i was directing a show called passport to europe maybe at the time um and so as soon as i met Ben, i was like okay well hang on a minute he has to be in front of the camera and it shouldn't be a little pilot for a travel series we should do a documentary about the journey of him going home after leaving his country for 10 years and bringing his best friend who'd lived a pretty sheltered upper middle class life and had never really put herself outside of our comfort zone. And so we kind of travel around around the country, including hiking up to the top of Kilimanjaro and going on safari to kind of get her ready to meet his tribe and his people um, who'd never interacted with white people before. And it was a very interesting, life-changing journey. So that to me was like, not only the power that you can bring to the viewer, but like it definitely changed my life. And, you know, so that was, that was definitely an exciting, and that definitely lit, lit the fuse for me loving that world and making documentaries. So the difference between doing that and then doing a Rick Springfield documentary was pretty vast. Oh. <laughs> so so talk about just pure fun. But there was also a, a lot of heart in that film. So I had a friend named Melanie Lenz Janney. We kind of wanted to work together for a while. I'd always known about her. Fascination and huge love of Rick Springfield, the the more the singer songwriter, but also the General Hospital star, and I never got it. I liked him as a kid. I thought he was adorable, and I loved Jesse's girl. And then I went to a concert, and I was like, "Okay, I get it. This is their community. You know, we're all looking for community. We're all looking for where we fit in, and what almost brings us back to the happiest times of our lives. And so this was mostly women, but not only women. Mostly women, I'd say, 40 to even 60 you know mostly in their 40s I'd say who loved him as a kid um and once I always say it's like the Grateful Dead for grown-ups you know because Grateful oh. Dead's not touring anymore because these women and also some men would leave their spouse their children once a month and go on the road with Rick for like three days I Whoa. kid you not and Rick would interact with them there was like a mutual respect and, and almost admiration. And so, you know, they knew each other and they would visit with Rick in the hotel. And afterwards he would usually go to the bar and greet everybody. And I was like, gosh, this is really special. And then I heard like Rick performer. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like he jams harder than I ever remember. Like he is a, a rock and roll star. Like he's not just a fluffy pop pop star. And he's always writing new music. Like he doesn't rest on the laurels of, you know, the Jesse's girl days. And so I found that fascinating. And so we kind of weave um several fan stories with him as an artist and then the intersection of how they come together. And he was had a book coming out which dealt very much about his the depression he'd suffered his entire life. And so that's a little bit of the film as well. Wow. And yeah, I'm very proud of that film. That's a total feel-good film with heart, it's funny but it's not i didn't want to make a nasty film like i didn't want to make fun of it so it's not that type of film. we could have gone in that direction but i was like i don't like mean-spirited films so so i had no interest in you know let's take the wacky you know world and make you know poke fun so it's a very embracing and heck i became a fan during the making of the film so
1: yeah any fan film it seems like you can go one of two directions you can celebrate how cool it is that people chose this thing to be their community or you can go oh why are these people obsessed with Video games or whatever it is, right, and the right. community—it's yeah. kind of that line in Goodwill Hunting where they say they could just go have a couple of caramels because it's
2: just—it's
1: right. just subjective. It's just an excuse to hang out with somebody in a way.
2: Totally, yeah. And there is, a, you know, and the funny thing about, uh, you know, documentaries is there's that line. There's that, you know, how do you balance it? And I, I mean, documentaries always have a point of view. I mean, you you, you can't help it. As individuals, we have a point of view. So the film started very. of free but of course the more I got to know Rick and the more I got to know the fans I became more like a fan so the film starts to see him through their eyes which I always thought would be kind of cool because when I was explaining the film to Rick I I was like you know it's three things it's the fans it's you as an artist and then it's you through the fans eyes and shockingly that's the final film (laughs) you know so often documentaries that they go in a number of different ways but this actually You know, he had no idea I was going this deep into the fans. You know, some of their stories are pretty amazing and how they intersect with him and the impact he's had on them. So that was joyous to make. I mean, my gosh, it was so much fun.
1: Yeah. So at some point you start looking for feature scripts or feature scripts start finding you. Is that how to follow her?
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. So I, I quite honestly, I thought I would have directed a narrative feature 10 years ago. But, you know, in this business, you, you make a living, you know, you have to. So I'm, I was always working. I haven't had to work outside the field. So but I work a lot. I produce other, you know, a lot of first time filmmakers and experienced filmmakers. And then I do the travel show. But I had put a real point of I'm um, finding a script. I just I've written a couple, but I, I didn't have something that I felt was right now and ready to go. So I started really reading scripts. And I met Danny through John Gallagher. She had reached out to him. Danny Barker wrote the screenplay. Um, She had reached out to him. She heard him on a podcast, a filmmaking Mm. podcast, and said, oh, my gosh, I'm looking for a director. She was in New York at the time. She's like, he sounds perfect. (laughs) So she reached out to him. And the funny thing is, is that she says to him, I'm fully funded, I'm shooting in six weeks. And he's like, oh, well, I'm booked. I can't do it, but you should have a, you know, he had read the script. You should have a woman do it anyway. So talk to Sylvia, she should direct it. So Of course, when Danny called me, she wasn't fully funded. (laughs) We didn't, we shot about 14 months later, Um, but I loved, it was, I mean, we did a lot of work on the script, but the core was all there. She's a wonderfully talented writer and she had a great concept for a film. And yeah, there was just, I read it. And I will say, of course, fully funded, shooting in six weeks, great. (laughs) That got (laughs) me, you know, but I pretty soon realized like, if we weren't, that wasn't quite where we were with the film. Um, but there was a lot there. I was like, God, a female protagonist who isn't perfect. You know, I, I love flawed characters because there's, I don't know, I haven't met anyone that isn't flawed and, you know, and right now, because of where we are with, you know, women and, and, you know, trying to have better diversity between, you know, male and female. And I feel like we might be tending to idolize or or like put up on pedestals women and I think that's not healthy so I like I liked a female protagonist that you would question that wasn't perfect that you'd even think well I'm not sure I'm rooting for her you know she's doing some really more you know morally objectionable things and um but yet she fights you know I, I had I didn't want I wouldn't be interested in a woman who was just objectified or you know didn't fight back and she's a strong headstrong you know, woman who makes choices and and lives by them. And so that was really compelling. And I, I you know, after talking with Danny, I could tell we, we would collaborate well together. Um, yeah. So yeah, we just kind of jumped off the cliff and decided to trust each other. Cause for me, it was um, a big leap of faith because she wrote it for her in the starring role and I'd never seen her, you know, do anything. So I started to research a little bit of her body of work but she's a young, new actress. But she had to also jump off and and have confidence in me. I hadn't directed a narrative film and so I think she probably did her research and we very quickly knew we would jive. And so yeah.
1: Well, I also love actors who, for whatever reason, figure out what part they want to play, and then instead of trying mm-hmm. to find that part, go out and write that part. That's so awesome.
2: Yeah, I know I tell because you know, acting. I I mean, directing is really hard because there's only one director per film and there's, you know, more actors, but still actors. I tell actors that all the time. So many of the wonderful actors I went to college with. I'm like, gosh, they they just weren't lucky. They didn't, you know, get there and they find little jobs. But I'm always saying, gosh, if you can write, if that is a skill, write, because as the writer, you hold all the clout. I mean, it's your property, you know, so.
1: Hey, I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker with a few words about our sponsor, Evermoon Media. They're doing something very relevant to me, and maybe to you too. Have you ever tried to learn video editing online? Movie Maker posts a lot of interviews on our YouTube channel, and sometimes I watch YouTube instructional videos about video editing, and it's just a huge waste of time. You search for how to move this without moving that, or how to finesse something, and it's just two minutes of a dude pleading with you to sign up for his channel. And then you get to the part you think is going to be relevant to you. And he doesn't explain anything at all. And he's also not going to answer your questions. You think I should have gone to film school, but that's a ton of time and money. And you don't really need film school to do the thing you're trying to do. Happily, happily, there is a great way to learn video editing online. The Evermoon Media online video editing course, Aimed Toward Beginners, gives you all the tools you need to build a professional video editor demo reel and start getting work. It's a hands-on approach where they give you high-quality footage to edit, and you send it to your instructor, Andrew, for feedback and tips. You can download free assets like templates, presets, SFX libraries, music, and 4K stock footage. And in no time, you'll be making ads, corporate videos, wedding videos, or YouTube videos like the ones I post on the Movie Maker account. Sign up free today with no credit card required, and try it out for yourself. Just go to evermoonmedia.com learn.
0: That's evermoonmedia.com learn. And now, back to our show.
1: You know, the other thing I think I've seen this build is this psychosexual thriller. And usually when you see that, you're talking about Skinamax or something. And this isn't that at all. No. At all. It's very smart. And I think one of the benefits of her writing it and starring it is that with a lot of those types of movies, sometimes you're like, did the actors have to do this? Like, is are they being put in an <laughs> right. uncomfortable position? And she's not. She's putting herself in all these positions.
0: Right.
2: Yeah, that was. And I will say that first draft I read was way riskier. I mm. think it was it probably would have been NC17. So Danny was very comfortable. She, you know, as an actor, she's she can blur those lines. She's she's very comfortable. Um, but I knew first off in the marketplace, I didn't think that was would would be wise and Um, It wasn't necessary. I, I am definitely in in the school of less is more. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think it's because I love classic old films. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
2: you know, you look at someone like, you know, Hitchcock or even like John Ford, all the great old time directors, you know, even De Sica, like even the Italian great, you know, you don't have to do so much. You don't have to show so much. You don't have to have, you know, gore there's a place for gore and horror um, for sure. That's probably not my first preference for the type of film I would make, though I do watch some, (laughs) so yeah. So yeah, it's definitely just an R, but it's not even a hard R. There's a lot, you know, language and stuff, but
1: yeah. Yeah, we talked about this at Heartland International. Yeah. Two of the scariest movies are Silence of the Lambs and Psycho, which actually show very little gore. We remember them as incredibly gory. Right but they're not. Yeah.
2: No, I think our minds, like if you lead us to our own thoughts, like, oh God, it's so much creepier than showing us in, in my opinion, you know? So yeah, Silence of the Lambs was terrifying. I mean, I remember I saw an early screening of that. It was, God, it was for the Worcester group, a group that Willem Defoe was involved in. And so they had the cast and I think Jonathan Demme was there. And I remember sitting in that theater and I was like, oh my God, this is like really scary and it was scary because it was it was making us almost visualize like the scenes where he's sewing the skin i was like oh if they had shown that it would have just grossed us out and we would have almost shut down but just seeing that like you're and measuring them you're like oh brilliant i probably without even thinking about it took from that you know yeah with making follow her is less less is more yeah you know
1: yeah total aside question but if you saw an early version there's a story that William Goldman, you know, the Princess Bride guy, and yeah. maybe the best screenwriter ever, Yeah. saw an early version of it and said, "Hey, there's like an 11 minute chunk about three fourths of the way in that you don't need. Take it out." <gasps> and he told them exactly where to cut it, and they cut it, and the movie's tighter and better. Do you remember? Do you remember scenes of? Did you see the early version before they cut that chunk? When you see songs? No, no. Like-
2: this was this okay. was the final film. It was just okay. an early, like a, an advanced screen, like the film was opening. That would have been a am- Boy, have they ever put that version out? Is no, it available? I think it
1: was, I think it was the first industry screening and they had no intention of making changes. And then they went, well, <gasps> William Goldman says oh to change it. gosh. <laughs> yeah.
2: Wow. I, I think cut this out. Goldman. And he wasn't even involved in the film. He just Not saw
1: he just saw it and he went, hmm. Good movie. Could be better.
2: <laughs> wow, boy. Jeez. That's yeah. uh, wow that's that's amazing that's great that they listened because yeah it's a fabulous film yeah I know I know the editor a, a beautiful uh guy named Craig McKay he actually a- edited a film I produced um and he did a bunch of of Demi's work yeah incredible. yeah really so that's that's amazing I, I may have to reach out to Craig and ask him about that because he would have been so involved in that <laughs> <laughs> you know as the editor of the movie Let me just but at least it was like cut here come back in here that was a very easy edit
1: <laughs> so that's so yeah, that's editing incredibly is, cool
2: it's wow. funny because even on follow her um the beauty with the film is that so we shot the first part all the stuff with the two leads the male lead luke cook who is freaking brilliant yeah. um we had to kind of shoot him out of the movie we were bringing him in from la and he was just about to um hit it hit it kind of in a big way, um, the chilling adventures of Sabrina, he was playing the dark Lord, uh, Satan. Mm. And so we knew he was gonna be filming again, so we had to kind of get him done. So we filmed that. We were still, it's funny, we had a Q&A last night with Luke and Danny and a bunch of the team at Screamfest. And uh, Luke was even saying like, he remembers on set, we were still figuring out what the film was in a sense, like not not who their characters were, but what we were saying the hmm. film and where it was going to end and we kept coming up with all these kind of out out there ideas for the ending and how to end the work with him and um so the fun thing was is you know so we did that and alex scans the editor wonderful editor especially he's fabulous at scary you know content um so he edited that whole kind of mid mid chunk probably hmm. like 45 50 minutes of the movie and then we had the kind of the freedom to rethink rewrite all you know so we did I can't even tell you like it was 10 months later when we came back to film the rest Hmm. Uh, but we did so much rewriting because I I believe in collaboration I think the more impact you know the more you have to know when to say okay thank you for your opinion I'm going to respectfully decline that suggestion but I think listening to people and really hearing them because especially if they don't know anything about the film and especially if they don't know you, you know, or if they do know you, but you know that they'll be really honest. And and sometimes it's not even filmmakers that give you the best feedback because they're looking at it so specifically as a filmmaker, how I would have done it. So what we got overwhelmingly from that midsection was just, you know, who is she? We needed to build her backstory a little bit hmm. and which is all kind of that whole first chunk And then when we started doing that um, and sharing those pages, people were like, you know, you got to make her, she is morally objectionable and you don't know if you'd like her, but you got to like her enough to root for her. You have to want to take the journey with her. So we did a bit of reworking, you know, of scenes. And I remember, thank goodness, Danny is really open you know, to collaboration and she's not precious with her work. A lot of writers would be like, this is a script. Stop. You're making, I, I know I made her crazy <laughs> because we, we did so much. I was, I'm never satisfied. I'm always like, you can, if you can make it better, make it better. Don't just settle for good enough, you know? So we just kept, you know, reworking. And I, I think the um that main title sequence, you know, which is a couple minutes into the movie yeah. um, we felt like we needed, I didn't want to just have like a scene of exposition to like, fill in the backstory of the social media app she's using in that world. So I thought, gosh, this could elevate the beginning of the film, which is mostly just, you know, Jess. Um, and also give you a feel for the film, like even the purvis song and like just the the, you know, the visual effects by Alex Noble and his team is, I think, wonderful.
1: Yeah. Amazing. And you also, so that you don't get too caught up in, you know, how the app works or something like that. And you don't have to spend a lot of time explaining it, you just really drown us in the right. technology at the very beginning so that we're completely acclimated to it and don't have to worry about it ever again and right. i thought that worked really effectively there's always that thing in movies where you go that's not how text messaging works or that's going to age badly or whatever and you have right. none of that it's very effective oh. and thanks
2: yeah a it little dystopian
1: a... <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. like the real world
2: that's so funny yeah it was a bit daunting because um Danny had been very big on social media. She had had a YouTube channel
0: mm-hmm. that she
2: did these wacky jobs. Um, she never found herself in danger the way she does in the film, but that's kind of was the, the nugget that got the, the script started for her. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. She had a, yeah, a series that she had at, in the height of it about a dozen years ago, she would sometimes have a million views and stuff, but mm-hmm. when she stopped doing that, um, she stopped on social media. So we were both doing a social media film and we were terrible at social media. Like I, it still makes me anxious. I mean, I've, I forced myself kicking and screaming to post and be on Twitter and Instagram. And, but boy, I am not good at it. And it takes a lot of time and it even causes a little anxiety because I don't feel it's not natural for me. So I'm like, Oh my gosh, we're making a social media movie and we both suck at this. <laughs> so we spent a lot of times in some of the early Oh, some of the early ideas that mostly Danny had because she was really searching for who Jess was how mm-hmm. she was going to play her her character how we made her interesting not just some bubblehead girl we that's why in her mind she has a cause she's trying to exploit like show men that are exploiting women or putting them in bad circumstances to give her a little bit of so you care like she and also cuz she can convince herself she's she's kind of doing a good thing you know um but it went through a lot of different looks and yeah. so kind of bringing on wild union post and their sophistication for how we were going to do the graphics really helped they became almost a part of that of that world um of designing helping to really design that look you know and we didn't have them for the whole first part of shooting they only came on you know for the ones we were getting ready to to shoot the the beginning you know 20 minutes and the final 12 Um, but yeah, but that was when the whole world was being created. So
1: yeah. What in a movie like this, that kind of combines like the erotic thrill elements with horror elements and comedic elements, What does the intimacy coordination look like? I mean, because that's a harder job on a movie like this than a movie where two people just, you know, go to bed together.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing, um, I had, and this happens on every indie film. You plan it one way and it goes a different way. So I had planned, you know, because Luke, he's an Australian actor, but he's been living in the US for I gosh, I think at least 10, 12 years. He was in LA. So he came in three days before we started filming. And we had a little bit of rehearsal time. I mean, he had to do fittings and all of that stuff. So we had maybe a two days. And I thought, you know, we'll we'll block it. So I can have the camera department because we were a small crew kind of pre light and rig. And, you know, I wanted to kind of not just say you're here, then you're there, you know, kind of work it out together. What felt organic. And of course, we didn't stick to that completely. But I had scheduled the first day of filming was going to be the day that the two actors meet in the park. Very nice scene. They're meeting for the first time. The crew is getting to know each other. And I was like, it's just perfect. There's a lot of dialogue in that scene, but it's a charming scene, it's fun, it's, well, at about later that, the night before, and that was gonna be like a 7 a.m. call, suddenly a storm was oh, on oh. its way. Yeah, so by like 9 p.m., I'm like, oh my gosh, there's was like an 80% chance of rain. And we couldn't have it raining because first off, who wants to see them sitting out in the rain for all day long? <laughs> and then it would affect the whole, because this all happens in one afternoon evening. Um, so I had to call the two actors that night and say, She's- oh, well, my first call was to the production designer saying, well, what set can we have ready? And she's like, are you kidding? Because she was going to have that whole, <laughs> she's like the bedroom. And I was like, oh, God. So I had to call the two actors at like 9 p.m. and say, guys, there's a very good chance we're going to be starting in that scene. And I had not even shot listed the scene with with my DP. And we were, I'm a big believer of shot listing. And I was, I had movies selected to watch for erotic and I didn't have time to do any of that. and So that morning we pulled the trigger and, and they're like, Oh my God. Okay. Let's just do it. So I think not, not thinking it through too much might actually have helped. And Luke and Danny were staying at the same hotel and they, they'd gotten comfortable with each other. And there was a conversation of like, if either of you feel uncomfortable, let us know we we cleared whoever didn't have to be up there it's not like there's much nudity I mean she's wearing some very provocative clothing but so you, there's a little bit of nudity but not much and they just had a comfort and it was a little awkward because she's like you know her foot's in his mouth in day one like it's a pretty <laughs> wild scene you know and um but because there was no time like and we had to just jump in with, with both feet hot huh? um there was <laughs> n- not enough time for anxiety I'd say and I think it actually made the film better because the comfort they had to get over and get to with each other I mean you know she's sitting on top of him for such a long time and the tickling I mean there's a lot to that scene and we all had to just like jump in and get comfortable and we were in a small space and um so yeah so that I think helped you know that they we kind of crossed that so all this stuff earlier the kind of Erotic kind of like movement that they have and dance a little bit. That was like, ah, that's nothing, you know? <laughs> and, and they're both very natural and very comfortable in their own skin. You know, some actors would, would be more, um, like they didn't care if there was people in the room, you know, they're just, I mean, they want quiet and focus, but like they're very comfortable. And so that, that was great. And I felt very comfortable with them. So, so that was, yeah, really <laughs> thankful. But I'm, I'm actually, I'm very happy. That, it went down that way. I really am. Cause I think everything from that point forward, there was, there was a connection and there's great, um, chemistry between the two of them, I think in the film. And so it, it built from there.
1: And I'm sure it helps in terms of comfort level that she wrote the movie. Like that. Totally. Month, that month exactly. Month. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Otherwise it would have been that whole discussion of what are you comfortable with? And I knew she was, you know, very comfortable and we, we, talked through it you know the day we when we started filming before we started filming we walked through it the three of us we kind of had the space to ourselves and kind of blocked it and walked in and really talked through it yeah so
1: that was yeah so the main thing I wanted to ask we haven't even really asked about that I haven't really even asked about yet is what skills from being a documentarian did you bring into making this feature
2: oh yeah well so the thing I love about about making docs, um, is the research and the planning and the digging and the uncovering and the reality of it, you know, you, you aren't, you're showing a world like you're showing true life. And I think like what better type of film, but this to have it almost feel a little bit like a documentary, you know, I really wanted a naturalistic feel, even though there's graphics and stuff, but that's the world we live in. I mean, yeah, they're popping up, but I wanted her life and when, you know, when we see she's kind of being followed a little bit, I wanted that to feel real. And I think having the skills of being used to thinking about research and what angle to tell and when do we shift the arc of the story and whose story is it, all of that, um, I think really helped because I, I think in documentaries, there's so many different styles. I really like docs that have a story that Mm -hmm. aren't just, talking heads and you can have talking heads and docs, you need them at times to, ju- but I really love like stories where like each, like there's scenes and you have arcs and scenes and you, you know, you have, you know, the protagonist storyline and where are they going and what's the conflict and what's, you know, so I was already very used to, which a lot of just narrative films as well. No oh, motorcycle going by. Um, yeah, so a lot of films, you know, when you're doing narrative, of course, you're always thinking conflict. Um, but as a documentary filmmaker, I was always thinking about that. And the fact that I started as a stage director, because I probably would have had much more anxiety had I never worked with actors, mm. you know, but doing stage, it's like, you know, you're working out every line and beats and actions and, you know, and I of course read, read up on, you know, some, some of my favorite, you know, directors. And I did, a, I read a bit of Scorsese on Scorsese and some stuff, John Sales and, and stuff about Hitchcock and you know, so I feel like that research part and and having to learn about social media, you know, not being one that was active on it, I feel like that that definitely helped. And And you know, in docs, you have to be able to identify when people are not comfortable on camera and when to kind of lay back and when to when you can really push in. and, and you also have to make sure that your DP and every camera person is really listening you know, because in a doc, you don't know what's going to happen. And if you're, if your DP is so focused on, oh, I wish I could get, you know, that flower in the shot, you know, then you're going to miss something. And so my DP, Luke Geisbuehler, who comes from docs as well, he, he's done a bunch of Sasha Baron Cohen's films. He just did the last Borat and the first Borat and his series. And yeah, he's brilliant, brilliant. He's also does narrative. He did match and a bunch of other films, but you know, Luke, having come from that world, he has those same skills or he's he's always listening. He's always looking at performance. I mean, there's definitely were a few times where he's like, are you gonna do that again? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, think we, I think that take was a little, you know um, and I could go to Luke and say, what did you think? Did you buy that? You know, um, yeah, I think just bringing all of that and just, yeah, the love of thinking about people as not actors, but as real people, which is kind of how you work on docs you know, and even like the travel show I do on um, places to love, like, you, you know, you need interesting people in front of the camera and you have to be able to identify like, Oh, I think that they would be good. You know, that there's a comfort level and how do I make them comfortable and how do I, you know, respect their space and respect all the people we're working with. Cause I think the environment, I think the more comfortable a set is, and the more free that the actors feel the better film, you know? So I'm, definitely always and I definitely learned that from like people like John Gallagher I'm a huge like John Cassavetes fan and it could just and even like you know the early Fellini stuff you know you just could imagine that there was a lot of love on set and people felt really comfortable and if someone had a great idea you know you listen you know so
1: there must be a lot when you're making documentaries especially about travel where you have to go into a town or go into a country and sort of try to capture the gist of it or the feel or the mood of it, which is an impossibly daunting prospect in a couple of shots. And yeah. I think you do that really, really well in this movie. And it sort of elevates everything and takes it beyond like, this is a story of just two people. When you have these incredible shots off the, I believe it's off the Brooklyn bridge. You have yeah. these incredible cityscape shots, incredible yeah. shots when they go upstate on the train shots that you stole on the train. Yeah. Just terrific. There you go. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: Terrific, you know,
1: actually shots. Yeah, that's, That's a
2: really good point. Because for instance, like when I was doing my Tanzania doc, I'd never met my DPs. I hired them both online and we met in Africa, we met in Tanzania. (laughs) But so I had them look at certain films and I had shots that I showed them because you're right, especially in docs, you have to get a point across, show quickly the, the world that you're entering into. And I knew we had to do that here you know, even like the difference between where she's first living, she's like in this gorgeous palatial apartment. And you're like, how the hell does she afford this place? Well, you, and then you learn, Oh, she doesn't afford it. It's her dad's place. and Now they're selling it. Um, and then you see her in kind of the seedier place, you know? Um, yeah. And some of those, those, yeah, those, I love that. Uh, the shot from her rooftop where you have the train going by and she's up, you know, uh, on the getting photographed and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a very good point. And then also, yeah, the stealing the subway and the train shots, you know. But again, that's I mean, that's Luke is very good at that. I mean, th- I think about all the shit that
1: Borat that they did in Borat. <laughs> yeah.
2: Like yeah, stealing a subway train. He's like he's oh. like yeah, no problem.
1: You know. Um, so to steal a shot on a subway train, you t- you told me about this at Heartland, but you basically just rely on the kindness of New Yorkers. You just say everybody look that way.
2: Sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> like, no, New Yorkers are
1: super nice. They are. Yeah. They're they're super nice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, we we didn't like make them late or anything. It's not like we were interrupting their work day. They just happened to be where we had cameras. So yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty crazy, but we, you know, we were disruptive. We were very respectful and we kind of communicated to people what was going on. And a couple of times we even asked someone to move because they were going to be in the shop too much, you know? And so we wanted to put a crew person, you know, there and, um, Yeah. Yeah. So, no, it was, it was, uh, yeah. So, so even thinking about doing that, although I'm sure a lot of narrative filmmakers would be like, Oh hell yeah, I'd grab that. But as a doc filmmaker, you get very good at that kind of stuff. So, you know, that, you know, being undercover is yeah, definitely made it easier. And, and for the team as well, we, we had as few people as possible, you know, and the crew was ready to sit in the shot, I mean, our script supervisor is like trying to listen, but she's also like in the shot, (laughs) sitting next (laughs) to Jess, you know, yeah.
1: Do you need everybody to sign something?
2: Yeah, well, so that's the thing on the subway, we couldn't ask everybody in the subway car to sign. So that's why we really tried to shoot them from the side or, you know, get our people in the shot. And it was supposed to look very voyeuristic, like, you know, so we're supposed to shoot around corners and, you know, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the stuff on the train ride of her going up into the country was also we just kind of (laughs) grabbed the stuff on the Staten Island Ferry, completely legitimate. There would have been no way to grab that. So but they're very reasonable. They're they're very easy to work with, not expensive. Yeah. So that was and we just felt like I mean, we're shooting in New York, like let's show some of those iconic Statue of Liberty, you know, arriving in New York to also. You know, that moving across water and you see her like where she wants to be, you know, I thought there was something telling about that for her character, you know, to open the film where she's, you know, yeah, leaving where she was just working, going towards like the want to live place, you know, where she's going for an audition, Ah, you know, New York City type of thing yeah
1: working in staten island dreaming of manhattan
2: right yeah and then living in brooklyn which is you know nowadays brooklyn is amazing but most of the casting and stuff is still happening you know in the city and and uh yeah yeah
1: uh when you say they're great to work with the staten island Ferry folks is that is there a staten island film commission is it the new york city film commission who who do you work with
2: um so i think it starts with the new york film commission but then i think like if you go right to the staten island ferry association or that there's like it's very easy to find there's a whole thing about just filming on the staten island ferry you have to have insurance and you have to give them notice and um you have to tell them which ferry and you know that type of thing but it it was pretty easy michael and jay and um our producer really thank goodness you know handled most of that um and he's he's terrific and if I give him, if I, if I know Michael's handling it, I don't have to stress about it. Um, yeah, so he really, really helped with all of that. But I know it was, it was, it was definitely doable. And I think Noah, Brooklyn, our production designer, had filmed on it and and helped. And, and same thing with Luke had had filmed on it. So
1: I just ask because it's so open and iconic, and sort of takes you out of the claustrophobic shooting in a city and gets mm-hmm. you out into it. But what you said about dreams and. Mm-hmm. about the future it really does get that across and I get that feeling every time I get in the Staten Island Ferry whichever direction I'm going in yeah
2: yeah yeah, yeah it's right. kind of magical yeah it really you is. Know? yeah 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 it's a-
1: is there anything I should have asked that I didn't
2: gosh not that I can think of I mean maybe we can just talk for a second about the upcoming festivals
1: yeah I'd love actually to- yeah let so me, let me try to set, let me try to set you up there okay. and I'll do it So you are in the midst of an incredible festival run. Besides Heartland, you're currently bound for Austin. After that, you're going to FilmQuest. You have a lot more. You're at a festival as we speak. Can you just talk about the festivals that you've done and that you're doing?
2: Yeah. So it's funny. I've always felt, even though, you know, as a producer of indies and as a doc filmmaker, you work so hard making a movie and it's, you know, you're often not financially rewarded at the level you should be on indie films. And so I always tell everyone in the world, you know, festivals, don't shortchange festivals, go to them, that's your payoff. That's the reward for all the hard work. So I knew if we got into festivals, I was going. (laughs) So it's been pretty amazing. We started, our world premiere was um, at Fantasporto in Portugal, in Porto, which was just a beautiful festival. The people that run it, Mario and Beatriz, like just classy. They put us in a gorgeous hotel. We could walk to this beautiful theater. We had a wonderfully, you know, packed screening, and we won a few awards. And, and I mean, then it was to Brazil and Slovenia and Mexico City and Popcorn Frights in South Florida was our, mm. you know, North American premiere. Um, another fabulous, really fabulous festival, and we just did Woodstock, which. I can't say enough about Woodstock, the Woodstock Film Festival. Amir, I don't know how she does it all, but like brilliant, brilliant festival. I saw such amazing films. We had one of the best screenings we've ever had at the Tinker Street Cinema, fabulous venue. Um, we may have had our best screening ever last night just for the quality, because it was the um, Scream Fest here in Los Angeles and it's at the TCL Chinese Theater. And we were in this gorgeous theater, uh, Cinema Six, I think. and. I was like, oh my gosh, I was hearing things from the mix that I haven't heard since I was in this mix mixing room. Wow. And so that was really exciting. And then uh, how could I forget Fright Fest in London was mm-hmm. such a fun. And I met so many amazing filmmakers there. and made so many friends. And then I have to say Brussels was pretty amazing as well. Um, but yeah, so now Great. I actually fly to Australia, to Sydney, Australia, <laughs> tomorrow night, We're the opening night film at a night of horror. And thank God. I do a travel series and I have accumulated a lot of miles (laughs) (laughs) Because I am using my miles to fly to Australia. Never been. So that's a bit of a long way to go for a festival, but it's a life experience. Um, I definitely believe in live now, who knows about tomorrow. And so when am I going to get, I mean, I can make a chance to go to Australia, but why wouldn't I go to a really cool festival? I've had a great time speaking with the the people at the festival. They seem really amazing Bryn, and yeah. So, um, we go there. And then, so I go straight from there to Austin, where I know I will be seeing you and Deirdre. And I, Austin was, I was blown away when we got in to tell you the truth. Andy called. I'm like, Oh my God, the Austin Film Festival is calling. I'm like, usually that's a good sign. (laughs) So I I was at Brussels and I'm like, Oh my God. And I picked up and we weren't in yet, but he was calling to just kind of find out where we were and make sure that we were still interested. And I was beyond thrilled. I've wanted to play Austin for years. Like, forever basically so i'm really thrilled about being there and then another amazing thing is that with women in film and television austin selected follow her to be the film that they co-sponsor so they're kind of hosting our first screening and you know they'll do the q and we may get have do a little get together beforehand so i was very honored about that as a member of two chapters of women in film so yeah so that seems really cool and then yeah sadly a festival I've wanted to get into since I learned about it, you know, a year ago it was nightmares mm. and boy, I already had made the commitment to sit, to fly to Sydney in the exact same time. But uh, it kills me to not be at festivals. Like a lot of people are like, why? I'm like, I'm the director of the movie. Like, I think it's an honor when a festival chooses you. Yeah, I don't take that lightly. I mean, I think like if they chose my film, like I, I need to respect that, selection and be there like you know I should honor their selection and be there in person to show that I care about their festival and also to make sure the film I always test the film you know and just make sure that it looks good and try to help it's hard sometimes to get people into a screening I mean it's really hard you yeah. know that's always I'm always like oh my god what if you throw a party and no one comes <laughs> same thing okay. you know what if you movie screens and four people are in the and that'll happen on any it's going to happen to you once probably, you know, on your festival journey, but you try to prevent it, you know, and then, yeah. And then, you know, film quests, I'm really looking forward to as well. And then I've got a fun one in Italy, Ravenna, um, which a couple of dear friends are coming with me. So we're going to make a little party and, you know, visit Italy a little bit and a couple in Canada coming up and yeah, so it's fun. It's yeah, it's really
1: fun. It's a hell of a run, and it's a testament to how much this movie is re- resonating with people and how much they appreciate it. So, just congratulations. That's, Thank you. Thank and, you. I,
2: yeah, I appreciate it, and and it. I appreciate what you guys do too. Is just kind of championing small films and indie filmmakers and helping people to learn about that. And also, your kind of your co production thing, which we talked about a little bit, is pretty awesome. I mean, I know we're going to hopefully partner together on my next film. We'll see, you know, but it sounds like such a great opportunity.
1: Um, you're basically just getting another producer and you're getting everything for half off. So we're not about it. Right. Who doesn't want to do that?
2: (laughs) It sounds like sign me up. Yeah. So that's great.
1: Yeah. I don't know if we'll leave this in, but if we do, it's moviemaker.com slash M M P S. But yeah no, we think it's a great program and we're really proud of it. it. And is it people, yeah.
2: do it. people need to look into it and and the nice thing is that it's for films of all sizes. so like I think we've even talked about like if you have a forty thousand dollar film, what, wouldn't you rather it was an eighty thousand dollar film? you know gets you know so I think the the lower the budget it's even more helpful. but even we even talked about because the film I'm talking about is in the several millions and you're like, no, no, we could still sure. partner because there's never enough there's never enough time. And, and money on independent film, any film, really, everybody can, you know, I feel like our brains, like if we know we have 22 days, or if you know you have 80 days, you still are like, oh, I wish I had that 85 days, you know, so no matter what, how many days you have, I think you just
1: use them, so. Sorry, I, I know we talked about this, but David Fincher and Adam McKay, who we talked to for our podcast, both said the exact same thing, whether you're oh, making a little tiny movie, or you're making a movie that's $50 million or more. <laughs> it's just the same fight you'll never have enough you'll never be fast enough right it's always so, true.
2: <laughs> so true yeah absolutely
1: cool well just huge congratulations on this film and i'm excited to see it in austin and to see it film quest and to get to see the movie in the theater
2: yes yes we're really hoping we're in the talks right now our reps xyz and uta are talking to people and so we're praying it's not easy it's a hard world right now for indie film but we're confident, it'll, it'll, you'll be seeing it. It'll come out next year.
1: So well, anybody checking this out, it's a good get and it's a it's a get it on the ground floor type of situation. So not the ground floor exactly because you're- <laughs> Right, but, but there work. is a
2: trilogy in mind. So if that is of interest, yeah. But you know, with, with within reason, let's see how this first one does, but oh yeah. There's already 40 pages written in the second script which Danny did, and but we have talked about collaborating, writing parts two and three together. So we'll see. i love it yeah it definitely ends where you could see another you know seeing it seeing a sequel yeah Uh, that's awesome yeah so very much looking forward to it if that happens